Over the last few episodes, we talked a lot about the flexibility breaking the tech brings. For some, it allows more time with family. For others, it solves in the outdoors. But the flexibility about where and how you work might have additional benefits and challenges that surprise you. Although big cities once boosted the rise of tech companies, the ability to work from anywhere changed the game. So when you're breaking the tech, do you need to live in one of these tech hubs? Which option brings more perks, remote work or on-site? And are our salaries still the same? Hi, my name is Will Newsom, and you're listening to Tech Start. In this show, we explore the realities of changing careers and getting into tech. And in this episode, we will talk to Daniel Odegaard, a senior recruiter at Triple Ten. He'll tell us if tech rookies should pack their bags or sit tight, or maybe a little bit of both. In your experience, what companies in the IT space uh, prefer to hire remote workers and which tend to offer more like office-based positions? Sure. So, I mean, so we, we've seen a huge shift in that over the past really about five to six years. You know, pre-pandemic, what you mostly saw in terms of remote workforce tended to be smaller consulting companies or companies that couldn't afford to have office space for workers. You know, and then obviously during the pandemic, everybody went remote. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't really matter what you did, you know, in the business world, you you went remote except for in a few very specific circumstances, you know, with that. And then coming out of that, you know, you've seen a lot of major companies, you know, put the return to office mandates in. But where we see a lot of opportunity for remote workers now is for small to mid-sized companies. If you're a giant company like a Salesforce or a Microsoft, you're going to have your office space whether or not you actually have people coming in or not, because you can use it for all kinds, for all kinds of different things. But if you're looking at, you know, small to mid-sized companies, and I'm going to define mid-size here, Will, there's a lot of definitions for this, but I'm going to define mid-size here as if you have 100 to 500 employees. If you're at 100 to 500 employees, you're at a tipping point where, yes, you probably still need some kind of office somewhere, depending on, you know, depending on what exactly you do. If you do software delivery, if you have a tie into an actual physical product, you probably still have some need for an office somewhere. But but what, what you you don't want to have is space for three or 400 people to work out of that office space and only have 100. And so we've seen a huge, huge shifts in the commercial real estate space, actually, where a lot of these mid-sized companies have very aggressively downsized their office presence and really shifted most of their workforce. Unless there's a huge need for those folks to come and be on site, they're not going to have them on site. And so they've really, they've really streamlined that. So there's tremendous opportunity for smaller companies that really don't want to invest in a commercial real estate footprint for their office unless they really need to. And at that mid-sized level companies. Well, I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the opportunities right now for remote workers. Okay. Awesome. That was a great breakdown. I know we are, I guess, society in whole, we all know about uh, the gender pay gap. Is there such thing as a location gap? I say like two coders, they both have like same level of experience. One is primarily in office and one is remote. Are any of those two like going to get paid more than the other depending on where they work at? There's not a neat answer to this because there are some companies that have a location-based compensation philosophy, meaning that, let's say, Will, if, if you and I are doing the same job and you're based in San Francisco and I'm based in, oh, let's say, Albuquerque, New Mexico, for example, because of the cost of living differences from where you are versus where I am, you know, you would get paid significantly more because cost of living in California is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> 
not saying New Mexico can't have some expenses, but it's 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 very different. Yeah. But you have other you have other kinds of, of comp philosophies within organizations that that I, I think you're seeing more come to the forefront, and that's where it's it's more of an objective value based on the work being produced or work being done. And and you see this more now with remote companies where they're they're assigning a value to the amount of work or productivity they expect out of a particular role at a particular level within the organization and they adjust their salary or pay bands to fit that. So in that sense, it opens up some flexibility for them because, you know, they can in some ways they can have greater cost control on some of those things because they can just come out of their job posting and say, hey, we're hiring for this position. You know, this this is you know whether if it's in remote or in office, this is what we paid, this is what it is. And there can be a lot of transparency there, you know, for good or for ill, whether or not it's actually market competitive for where they're based out of. And really that can also vary quite a lot, even within your large companies, your Fortune 500s, to your small to mid-sized companies, to your you know to your startups as well. And some of that can even be tied back to how the company that they're applying to is funded. Because if you think about that, if they have a lot of VC money and they're rich in money with that, they may not necessarily care for the next three years, you know, who they're paying, who they're paying what. Yeah. <laughs> because they got money to burn. They may not care. However, if it's more of a bootstrap startup, every dollar matters. And so and so they may even be more willing to hire someone who's remote, but then they might also pay a little less um, with that because that's just what they're able to offer. So there's there's a full spectrum on, on this whole issue of, of pay gaps and pay transparency that it is a really difficult one to solve and really difficult one for job seekers to navigate. Okay. Off of remote for a second, what are the benefits to working in office full time? It depends on the person's seniority is where I think is where you really see the benefits really matches a traditional bell curve. So if you think about people who are like the entry level to their career, and I'm going to define entry level will as zero to three years of experience into their into their chosen career. That's how we'll define this. For those people in that early career stage, there can be a lot of value to being in the office face to face because you because oftentimes you can build relationships with your more experienced um, peers or mid level employees, you can get more face to face time with your manager can be a lot easier if I'm you know, if I'm sitting in my office here in Rochester, Minnesota, but our corporate office, for example, were to be in New York, for example, I can't just swing by my manager's office and say, hey, (laughs) say, hey, I I got an issue. Can we talk about this? If you're in office, you can do that. And so there's a lot of interpersonal things that that you can, to some degree, I'll use the word mentorship, but I think that word's really overused a lot. There's a lot of interpersonal things that you can't really replicate in a full remote work environment. Um, That's really valuable for an entry-level employee. However, the more experienced you go, you could argue there's less and less value to that because as you have more experience, you know how to handle your day-to-day job, they have less need for those kinds of unscheduled interactions with those things. So as you get more into the middle part of your career where you're a lot more experienced, you know what you're doing, there's still value in, in, in being able to come by an office once a week, for example, in a hybrid work situation to still build those relationships with people. There's there's some interesting research out there in terms of uh, that's more social psychology based. Well, and I apologize, I don't have the reference off the top of my head. 
bad, but there's some interesting social psychology research coming out that where it talks about the value of face-to-face relationships in terms of building trust is formed much quicker in face-to-face environments and how that cascades throughout your working relationships throughout the organization. So there still continues to be value there, even in a hybrid work situation where it's where it's once a week. At the other end of the spectrum, if you're a leader of team members or an executive, a lot of those folks still tend to still find a lot of value in working in office versus full remote because for some of the same reasons with the relationship building side. And I think that's really what's at the heart for a lot of these larger organizations with these return to office mandates is that they have a fear that their senior leadership is not going to be able to manage the day-to-day work near as well in a continued full remote environment. Early in your career, especially, there is value to be, you know, being in office if there's, if there's some opportunity to that. Where that starts to fall apart is if you don't have a dedicated workspace in that company's in office environment. With this change and shrinking of real estate footprints that I mentioned earlier, what a lot of companies are going to is essentially big workroom areas where they'll have, you know, a couple of hundred workspaces set up and no one has an assigned workspace. Mm-hmm. You just come in, what, whatever every day you come in that, that you're working in, you just grab a workspace, plug your, you know, plug your work laptop in and away you go, you know, right. with that. That kind of setup, you see a lot of those benefits that I mentioned disappear because one day you might be sitting next to somebody in marketing. The next it might be might be somebody in customer service. And the next day it might be something else. And so if you have to hunt around and look for people, then you really for people that you work with, then you really start to see a lot of those diminished benefits that I talk about talk about earlier. So it's there really isn't a perfect solution, I think, for someone, especially in the early career stage. There, there's value to being in office and there's certainly value, you know, to being able to work in a quiet space that you can control you know, in your own house and in your own space. And, and to some degree, well, it really depends just how an individual is as a person. There are some people who are go- who are always going to do their best work yeah. if they're in a quiet, dark space with their music on and jamming and nobody and they don't talk to anybody for 72 hours. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, there's 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 people like that out there. And then there's other folks on the other end of the spectrum where ironically, they're at their most productive when they can talk to when they can talk to 40 people before lunch. Yeah, and it's it, you know it's somehow some way that they're still super productive, but they they need that social interaction because that's what drives their their personality, their giftings, and you know, however. <laughs> <laughs> However, you want to put that. So yeah. it, it comes back. It comes back to what kind of person that you are. What kind of environments that you thrive. On the flip side, is there a point where remote work can, uh, like, somebody's career can like stagnate and like it's a glass ceiling for remote work? Like they're less likely to get promoted if they like had like like say three remote jobs that they worked remote. They've never been in office for that specific company that they worked for. There's some research that shows that the people who are in the office every single day get noticed by superiors more often, get noticed by executives more often, just simply because their their face is just around the office more. They get noticed more, and there can be some evidence that those people get promoted, you know, sooner, you know, sooner or faster. That was especially true in older working models, you know, pre-COVID with that. However, I think it comes back to what size the company you're working in today and how does the internal culture of that company work now? Because for example, you have a lot of your startups, especially ones that are that are incredibly fast growing, where they're remote first organizations. And they take a very it's it's a very binary, is this person you know, achieving and producing X percent over their next peer. 
And if so, yes, we don't really care where they're based out of. We can print up and promote that person. Or they may take more of an approach of, hey, this person's a, a good performer, but maybe they're not the top performer. However, we can tell that they have the interpersonal skills to be successful leading a large team where someone who's amazing as an individual contributor might really struggle as a team. What I would challenge with this notion is, is to really think about if, if someone's you know, frustrated with their current situation and that they've, you know, they've seen peers get promoted, even though you can show empirically that you do as good or better work than they do. I would start to think about, okay, maybe the best outcome for me is to go to another organization where I can have new challenges, meet new people, to take on new professional responsibilities, you know, and all those things. And some, and that'll just happen at, at certain points in your career. There doesn't have to be anything that's you know, nefarious or something like like that within that company's culture. If you and I will are on a team of 10 people and there's one manager of that team, well, uh, unless that manager moves on, you know, all nine of us can work as hard as we want. Unless they create space for another manager, none of us are going to get promoted. Where some of this, I think this feeling comes into place of, am I not getting promoted because I'm working remote or other things? I think there's more personal things usually behind that for people's situation rather than just, you know, hey, is, is, do I just need to be in the office more to get noticed to get promoted? Maybe there could be something to that. I, I would argue the answer is probably not as complicated or maybe as nefarious as someone might be thinking with those things. But again, it comes back to company culture, comes back to how they operate, you know, comes back to relationships and relational equity that you've built within the organization. If somebody else is investing a lot of time in building relationships parallel and upwards across the organization, you know, and you're not, there could be some answers to that there too. So it's usually the answer to that will, I think, is is usually found in self-reflection and with those things and whether or not, hey, have I have I maximized all that I can in this role at this organization? And if I have, well, then for my own career growth goals, I probably need to start, I probably need to start looking for the next step in the organization or have a pretty candid conversation with, you know, with my manager. What we're seeing, especially with Gen Z, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this in, in a lot of his videos, where for, for Gen Z people, they can be so incredibly conflict averse that they would rather just go find a new job rather than have a conversation with their manager to see how they can grow and develop in their career. There is a real aspect of the old of the old expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Now you don't want to squeak all the time. <laughs> Yeah. But if you never ask, if you're not proactive in those things, that's where it's really easy to feel like you stagnate in a company and where it feels like, hey, why aren't I getting promoted? You know, that's it's really easy for that feeling to set in, I think, for a lot of people. Give us a quick update on what um, cities in the United States are considered like tech hubs. Ignoring the obvious ones like your like your Austin, Texas, your San Francisco's, your Seattle, Washington's, we're seeing a lot of interesting growth in kind of your next tier down of cities. So I'm going to ignore Chicago. I'm going to ignore New York and those those large metropolitan areas. And and and, th- and think about uh, harken back to our earlier conversation of cost control for for companies and where a lot 
lot of startups are, are flocking to are these mid-sized college towns where there's a relatively where it's a relatively cheap cost of living, but a pretty educated workforce in the areas around them. So let's so there's one of the really popular ones right now that I thought was interesting when I was researching this was Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is the which is the, which is the the capital of Arkansas. There, it's a huge college town, but you also have the presence of several of, of a couple of Fortune 500 companies, such as Walmart, for example, is based nearby there. Now, most people wouldn't think about Walmart in the context of a tech company, but if you think about e-commerce and all the things that they have to be involved with there, that naturally creates a lot of tech jobs. Again, cheap cost of living there, cheap cost of real estate if they want to have an office there, and they can grow and develop out from there, and they can obviously hire remote from there. So let's 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 think about that example and spread that out a little bit more. You got places like St. Paul, Minnesota, which tends to be a little bit more education, a mix of education based. But if you think about again, think about the St. Paul, Minneapolis area. You actually, I think they have, oh, I think it's twelve either Fortune 500 or similarly large companies that are headquartered in the area that are of companies that again they may not necessarily be tech companies although some of them are that they create a lot of tech jobs with that but again you have lots of you know lots of international colleges in the area university of minnesota huge education system you've also got um, places like baltimore maryland for example with the, with some of the with some of the combinator they have some combinator startup resources that are centered around johns hopkins university for example so again huge international college system draws people from all over the world. What happens when you draw people from all over the world who are super bright and sharp? You get lots of startup people, yeah. <laughs> lots of entrepreneurial, lots of entrepreneurial driven people. So yeah. you would think about those places across the country where relatively cheap cost of living, relatively cheap cost of office space, lots of colleges, and that, that creates places and opportunities where startups can grow and succeed and have a much longer time horizon because their costs are a lot less versus maybe if they're 100% based out of the San Francisco area or 100% based out of Seattle or Los Angeles or Austin, they have a much, much longer runway. There was there was a period of time over the last couple of last really about three or four years where there were a lot of startups that would start out in one of these smaller cities, you know, get a working prototype, get some early clients, and then they would go put a temporary office up in uh, up in the Bay Area while they did their big fundraising rounds or tried to do their big fundraising rounds. And then they turn around and left <laughs> their money went back to where they were actually based out of in one of these you know in, in one of these smaller markets and so to try to extend that runway with their cash flow you know with those things and so to work in tech or work for tech startups you really don't have to be based in a specific in a specific market in order to really have those really to have those opportunities if you're trying to work at one of the big tech organizations like a salesforce or microsoft or you know meta or Alphabet or one of those ones, for example. Well, those companies have their own unique culture and their own um, economies of scale. And so with what they want. And so you kind of have to play their game oftentimes when you first join them in terms of, you know, if they if they want you to move to Seattle because they want you to work in office, well, that may be what you have to do <laughs> if you want that experience of working with them. But, you know, that, that may or may not be your situation, but you have a little bit less leverage in your job search and looking at these things with the larger the company is. 
Does it make sense to move to like, I guess, these smaller tech hubs like Fayetteville or Ann Arbor if you're just starting out like early in career? Um, it might. I would tell people to do it if if that particular area fits your lifestyle and what you like to do. If I'm going to be miserable living in a place like you know Tempe, Arizona, for example, you know where it's where it's you know close to 100 degrees most of the year. Well, yes, there might there might be some job opportunities there and some additional things, and maybe that would be worth it. I would argue that 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 could be the case or it could be not. Don't move someplace just for the sake of of moving someplace. The last thing you want to do is move someplace, you know, relocate someplace, then find a job and then realize, you know, four months in that you that you absolutely hate the environment and, and the area and the situation just because it doesn't jive with you personally. Well, then you're going to have a compounding effect of stressed out of learning and developing and growing in your early career for your for your new job. And you hate the area that you live in. So that's probably 90 percent of your waking hours. You somewhat act you're either stressed or somewhat actively hate <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a recipe for producing good work, and it's not a recipe for growing and developing as an individual. How likely is it for someone to find a job outside of like these huge and smaller, I guess, mid-sized tech hubs um, early in career? Um Last year, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article where for jobs that were advertised as full remote was only about, I think it was like 15 or 20 percent of the total job market were advertised as full remote jobs. Yet those jobs received over half of all job applications, which should blow everybody's mind. So the earlier you are in your career, the less track record you have to pull on to be able to show in your resume and in the interviews that you will not, that you're not only a good candidate for the fit, a good candidate for, for this particular position, but you can point to, but being else being able to point to and say, hey, this is how I can be successful here and this is how I can help you achieve your organizational objective. So that becomes a correspondingly more difficult prospect for someone who's in an early career situation, but it's not impossible because as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, with a lot of your small to mid-sized companies, they're hiring for more and more remote workers all the time with that because their costs are, because on the whole, their costs are much cheaper with that. So it's certainly not impossible, but how difficult it is, that's a difficult thing to be able to accurately measure, you know, with those things. It is harder just in the, just in the base sense that more and more people apply for remote jobs. And so it becomes much harder to stand out from the 2000 other job applicants, you know, with those things. But that gets back to what I was what I was talking about earlier. Do you have a tight understanding of what your why is in your job search and moving to the tech industry? And that is everything that you're doing with your resume and how you interview flow from there. Your main task in the early part of your job search when you're applying to jobs is not actually to beat out the 2000 other applicants. When I go out to hire for a job, one of our remote jobs, I'm minimum going to get between 500 to 800 applications for that. Now, I'm going to shrink that down to 100 applications just for easy math's sake with this. So per 100 applications, I would expect, and this holds, per, this, this is my anecdotal experience. What I see is that for per 100 applications, on paper, I'm probably going to have anywhere between 6 to 10 strong fits for the position on paper. Now, that's now I'm only going off of what those candidates are can present to me on paper, where a lot 
lot of people make mistakes on this. And so the other for the other 90% of people, for those other 90 people, Will, probably 70 of them are wildly unqualified for the job. It's people who have set up some kind of auto application where anytime a job gets posted with these certain keywords, you're using a tool that automatically applies for them, which is not a good way to job search. But 70 of those 90, as, as I mentioned, that are not good fits, at least by what's showing on paper are people who are wildly unqualified or they're people who don't haven't really thought about how to communicate their experience on paper and don't really understand what a resume is. A resume is not simply a list of accomplishments and prior workplaces. A resume is a marketing document. It should be something designed to draw attention to the reader. It's it's something much more aligned with sales than it is a personal biography of what you've done. And so when I say six to 10 resumes on paper are viable, it's oftentimes it's more because those six to 10 people have put the time, effort and energy into really thinking critically about the resume and, and applying to be able to, again, keeping on this theme of your resume being a marketing document, been able to show, hey, yes, I've done X, Y and Z. Here's my prior workplaces. But here's also some clues and ideas of what I can come in and do and achieve you know, at your organization in this role and how I can help you achieve your objectives and goals you know, for, for that manager that that team and those kinds of things. And so when you when you get more in that vein, and that's how you that's the the to use an over overused term framework mm. <laughs> on these things, that changes your strategy and how you apply to jobs, that changes how you talk about your experience, how you interview. And so your odds, you know, go up dramatically versus you know, versus 90% of your competition with that. Aside from like, obviously like the opportunities network, what are the benefits and I guess the pros and cons of moving to a tech hub if you don't have to? It's what you make of it. There is no magic elixir of just moving to an area and things just happening to you because you're in that area. You know, there's, there's no magic elixir to that. However, if you're an early career professional, as I talked about earlier, zero to three years of experience in your particular field, and let's say you move to Raleigh, North Carolina, for example, or you move to the research triangle area between Duke and University of North Carolina. It's a huge med tech startup area. And they hold events and opportunities and things all the time for startup organizations, for tech workers and tech get-togethers and things like that. And so to some degree, yes, there's greater in-person networking opportunities. You can meet more people, you know, just in the just in the daily context of what you do, but it's what you make of those opportunities and do go and find those things. A great way that a lot of people don't really talk about anymore is to get involved with nonprofit organizations. You know, what people might you meet if you serve on the board for your local animal shelter, for example, or something or something along those lines? Who are you likely to meet there? Well, you're likely to meet other people who are, yes, are extremely passionate about animals, but you're also likely to meet people from all kinds of walks of life, including tech in those places. So I'd think broadly in terms of thinking of not just things centered on tech, but 
also think broadly about, okay, where am I likely to meet other people from other walks of life, build networks, build relationships, you know, across different areas to develop more opportunities for yourself, you know, for yourself down the road. There's a video podcast that I like that's by Pablo Torre. He's ESPN and his, his show is called Pablo Torre Finds Out. In one of his episodes, he talks about how jujitsu out in San Francisco is actually a huge networking opportunity because there's all these tech workers that are going out to learn various different forms of martial arts and they'll rub shoulders with people from all kinds of different tech companies that are that are all going out and learning martial arts. Well, that's it doesn't necessarily have to be martial arts. Maybe if you're in the Atlanta area, for example, an adjacent field that does really brings lots of people there is people in music or movie production. Atlanta is a huge area for TV show development and things like that. So think broadly about these things beyond just what's, you know, tech, 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 you know, centric and oriented. Think about, okay, where, what other things are happening here where I can meet interesting people doing interesting things. And there's almost always going to be some tie in back to tech somewhere within that. So like to sum it up, like moving, moving to like where the hottest thing is, like where the next tech hub might be or is, um, it's not a must. Like there's plenty of opportunities across the United States that you can really find one pretty much wherever you live. Yeah, it's it should fit your the other parts of your life and how you and, and what you're looking to do and achieve. Don't just move somewhere just because there's 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 a hot thing because here's the scary thing, and we see this in tech all the time. What's hot today may not be hot six months from now. Do you have like anything, any like final pieces or maybe like some final, I guess some advice to maybe early tech or maybe it could be any, any, like any mid stage, late stage people that are working in tech, any advice you would give to them being a recruiter? I'm roughly 12 years into my, in, into my recruiting career altogether, you know, plus or minus a couple of months. If I was to go back and start a brand new career track, here's a couple of things that I would do and really think about before I start doing those things. One, as I already mentioned, I'd really think long and hard about what's my why with changing careers or with changing careers or that kind of thing. Really understand that. Is it that I'm looking to make more money? Is it a career growth thing? Is it that I want to eventually lead a team? Or maybe I'm at a really large company and I want to work for a smaller company where my day-to-day work has greater impact. Really understand what your why is and then build your build your resume and your job search patterns and behaviors around those things. And then personally, what my strategy would be, and this is not this is not correct for everybody. My strategy would be to, if I was going to change careers, would be to try to work for a small to mid-sized organization for a number of reasons. The biggest one being that at a small company, there's not a lot of other people. And so just by just by virtue of there not being a lot of people, there's much greater opportunity for me to learn and expand and grow my skill set much more quickly working on a variety of projects and things that have to happen in a small company environment than if I was at a mid-sized company. Even in a mid-sized company, you start to see some stratification there or, 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 or siloed work there of you working on a particular team towards a particular goal. And if you're working on with a lot of particulars in mind there, that just by extension starts to narrow your focus on what you work on. Whereas in like a small company that's under 100 employees, there's a lot more room 
for you to spread out and work on. Well, maybe, you know, maybe if you're like a data analyst, for example, yes, you're analyzing data, but maybe one day you can help out marketing with analyze it with analyzing some things that they're doing. Maybe next day you're working with operations. In a small company environment, much greater opportunity for me to grow professionally. And at a small company, they oftentimes have a lot less resources to attract to attract highly skilled workers. So that would be my strategy is identify my why and then try to find small companies that fit my why that I can go in and learn and grow and have a big impact on. And then, you know, maybe three years down the road, make the jump to a little bit larger company or maybe to another smaller organization, but a couple of steps further up the, you know, the ladder in terms of responsibilities. That would be my approach. Now, it's also a little bit more risky because with smaller companies, you typically have fewer resources. And so if things aren't going well from a leadership perspective, there's there can be a greater opportunity for those companies to then go out of business. So this is not, I don't want to say this is not without risk with that. If you're someone who's in a more typical early career situation where, let's say, for example, you're in your early 20s or maybe even early 30s, you're not married, you don't have kids, there's not a lot of things tying you down. Your 20s should be an area where you're growing and experimenting and trying and doing all kinds of different things to grow and develop in your career and profession. You should have somewhat of a higher risk profile in your work in those kinds of areas and situations. But again, depends on your individual situation as a person with those things. So that would be my strategy. The the allure with mid-sized or larger organizations is that, hey, if they're mid-sized, they're large, they have a lot more resources, there's more training available. Um, and all of those things can be true. What the mistake is, is in thinking that there's more job security. There is not, as we've seen over the last several years with the huge layoffs. There is not more job security. And and I would argue there is actually less because at the drop of a hat, whole departments of thousands of people can be let go or reassigned or furloughed or those kinds of things. And those companies can do that and take that financial hit in the short run because they're, they're these massive ecosystems. Whereas if I am what Seth Godin calls a linchpin employee at a small organization, meaning that my work is at the center of why my team, my department, or how my manager is successful, there's a lot more job security in that. And if it's not necessarily job security, there's a lot of things I can point to in my experience. If I got to go find another job quickly because we went out of business, well, I can point to a lot of things like, hey, I was the center of why my manager and my team was being successful. And here are the receipts for, for how I was able to do that. Here are examples of how I might be able to do that for your team. So I would argue that to some degree, you have you may have more job security if you're really good and you're truly that linchpin of your team's success. You might have more job security. So again, those are things that I would think about, Will, from my perspective, if I was going to change careers, you know, with those things. Yeah, I tried to give a couple of thoughts there about if you're an early career person versus, you know, someone who's more mid-career, you know, who's who's been in the professional workforce for, you know, in that, that 10 to 20 year mark, your strategy might need to be a little different because you might have more responsibilities in terms of things that you're accountable for at home. You know, whether if, you know, whether if you have a significant other, if you have kids, you have a mortgage, you know, there, there's other factors that 
start to come into play that might change your strategy and how you do some of these things, you know, with that. So it's, you think about your own personal situation and what and what should make sense. But also for most people, I would encourage them to think laterally around their challenges, things rather than trying to go straight on into something all the time. Try to think, think creatively and think around those things that they're just constantly bashing, <laughs> trying, trying to take on some of these challenges head on. Yeah. Okay. So I hope that gave you some insight into how things are with remote work and IT these days. Explore more career tips by visiting tripleton.com slash blog. This was a Techstar podcast brought to you by Libo Libo Studio in partnership with Tripleton. Tune in for the last episode of the season next week.